City leaders in Boston announced plans to address the health and safety crisis at the Mass and Cass tent encampment. They want police to be able to quickly remove tents. We're seeking authority to shut down the spaces that are creating unsanitary and dangerous conditions and supporting the drug market that goes on there as well as the other criminal activities. It's Friday, August 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. The wildfires on Maui destroyed some of the only housing there for people with low incomes. It's one of the most expensive housing markets in the U.S. Also ahead, the Catholic Archdiocese of San Francisco files for bankruptcy protection. It comes after lawmakers opened a special window for sex abuse claims. Plus, scientists genetically engineer a see-through squid so they can watch its biology in action. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Federal Reserve is warning that additional interest rate hikes are on the table. Speaking at an economic summit in Jackson Hole, Wyoming today, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the central bank is not budging on its 2% inflation target. We have tightened policy significantly over the past year. Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high. We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. Powell says the Fed's fight to lower inflation has challenged banks, pointing out that lending standards have tightened. The Kremlin is dismissing allegations that Russian President Vladimir Putin was behind the apparent death of Wagner mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin in a plane crash outside Moscow this week. NPR's Charles Maines reports Russia was reacting to claims by the U.S. and other Western countries that Putin may have ordered his death. Speaking to reporters, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Western claims of Putin's involvement in the crash were, quote, absolute lies. Peskov noted there was lots of speculation around the crash and tragic deaths of people, including Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, and implied the West was out to fan disinformation. Peskov also repeated calls from the Russian president for a full investigation into the incident. On Thursday, Putin expressed sympathies for the families of those killed and said initial reports suggested many were members of the Wagner mercenary group. The Russian president also appeared to eulogize Prigozhin, referring to him in the past tense without unequivocally stating the Wagner chief had died in the crash. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. When we think of damage caused by wildfire smoke, our minds normally just go to our lungs. But Megan Myskowski with member station KUNM reports that a new study from the University of New Mexico says our brains are also at risk. The study says people with neurodegenerative diseases and mood disorders are potentially at higher risk of harm when there's poor air quality due to wildfires. UNM College of Pharmacy professor Matthew Campen says the new findings mean researchers need to keep thinking beyond the respiratory system when looking into the effects of smoke on our health. What about the potential that depression can be worsened? What about the potential that concentration and your ability to think and process information can be impaired? He says people can minimize risk by staying aware of air quality in their area and staying inside when there are high pollution levels. He also suggests limiting use of swamp coolers and wearing a mask on high pollution days. For NPR News, I'm Megan Myskowski. This is NPR News in Washington. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the city council to pass an ordinance that would give police more authority to prevent illegal activity in the area known as Mass and Cass. That's the epicenter of the area's opioid and homelessness crisis, where there's been a recent uptick in violent activity. Police Commissioner Michael Cox says police need greater leeway to remove tents. The ordinance will give the police the authority to take down the tarps and tents and structures that are, uh, that are occupying public ways and oftentimes are used to shield the criminal uh, disorder that goes on there. The mayor says the city has an effective support system in place to help those in need. She says that's helping police work effectively with public health and housing experts. Knowing the people who are in need of services and knowing who is not in need of services and are there to prey upon those who are, are hoping for housing and shelter and, and recovery. The mayor also wants to put 30 temporary shelter beds at Boston Public Health Commission offices on Mass Ave. 100 Massachusetts farms will receive $10,000 each to help them recover from this summer's floods. It's the first round of help from the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. The fund is run by the United Way. It was created after heavy flooding in July across the western part of the state destroyed an estimated $15 million worth of crops. Well, the Boston Symphony Orchestra's first European tour since 2018 is underway. That's the orchestra warming up earlier today before its concert at Royal Albert Hall in London. The BSO will perform in nine cities, including Paris, Berlin, and Hamburg, over the next couple of weeks. And taking a look at the forecast, we'll have scattered showers and thunderstorms tonight, temps in the upper 60s. Tomorrow will be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain and thunderstorms. It'll be in the upper 70s. It's looking brighter for Sunday, partly sunny and pleasant with temps around 73 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. In a few minutes, we'll hear from voters in a key battleground state about why they say they're more open to Republican candidates now than three years ago. First, this week's big moment for the Republican frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. If you go on Etsy today, you can find T-shirts, coffee mugs, even mouse pads featuring an image of him that did not exist until last night. His mugshot. Beyond being historic, the photograph is a powerful symbol that can be used in different ways. The image was the first thing Trump posted when he returned to the social media platform X last night. David Hume Kennerly is a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who has photographed 10 U.S. presidents, including Trump. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Glad to be here. Before I asked about the, the context or impact of this mugshot, will you just offer an assessment of it as an image? When you first look at it, what do you see? Well, it's it's stark. It's um, a guy trying to look tough. If I'd taken that picture for Time magazine, I would have been fired, probably. <laughs> Why do you say that? <laughs> well, I mean, the lighting, everything about it. A police mugshot is uh, not trying to flatter the subject, and this definitely was the case here. You photographed the former president in an extremely different context, and so will you contextualize this image 
in light of that personal experience that you had? I, I was shooting for CNN, the 2016 campaign, and three weeks after he won, we got a session with him in Trump Tower. And during the whole time he was president, he did very few sit-down portraits. And uh, uh, I don't think he really likes doing that, but I I made it work. It, it, it was like three minutes. And at one point he said, I want to look in the back of the camera, if you don't mind, see what you're doing. Hmm. And he looked at it, he goes, wow, that, I look better there than I do in real life. Hmm. And the thing is, working with him on the photo session, uh, it started off with him smiling, and it just it didn't look natural. And I said, how about giving me the you're fired look from The Apprentice? And he gave me that kind of a scowl, very similar to this, uh, this picture that we've seen uh, from Fulton County. This is the first ever mugshot of a former president, and that alone makes it a powerful historical artifact. But do you think there is also something about the image itself that adds to its impact? Oh, yeah. The circumstances are everything here. And he, he obviously is trying to show a uh, tough guy. Yeah, I, I think he was uh, in a really uncomfortable place there, but he knew what he wanted to do. And he has a real sense of how he looks, how he comes across. And what's interesting to me about it, like... Anybody who doesn't like him will look at it and say, wow, it makes him look like a really bad guy. And then all the people who really like him uh, are going to say this is a tough uh, person. And, and uh, it's, it's, photos are like that. It's all in how you perceive them. There is a whole history of famous mugshots. It's a genre unto itself. We've all seen <laughs> historic booking photos of celebrities or politicians accused of crimes. How do you think this stacks up in that category? Number, It's number one. Hmm. The, the guy's a former president of the United States. I mean, how shocking is that? And it's not shocking that they're putting it on coffee mugs and T-shirts and all that because that's just how they roll. But this is not a great day in American history, uh, although it's a really important photo. All right. I hesitate to ask this question, but I'm going <laughs> to do it anyway. Is it art? Not at all, no. But again, uh, isn't art in the eye of the beholder? And so, uh, uh, but no, I wouldn't look at it as art, but it's it's infamous. It's an infamous photo. And it will be the most published photograph ever taken, no doubt. Photographer of Presidents, David Hume Kennerly, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Just a couple miles from where Republican presidential candidates held their first debate in Milwaukee, another political battle has begun to brew that could have an even bigger impact on the 2024 race. In the Lincoln Village neighborhood, the Southside community, where it's about as common to be greeted in Spanish as in English, Republicans are trying to cut into Democrats' hold on Latino voters. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has more. While her 11-year-old son is getting his back-to-school haircut, Jennifer Nuno acknowledges she voted for President Biden, thinking he'd bring back more decency to the White House. I did just because of the awful things Trump had said. It hasn't turned out the way she hoped. The 30-year-old mother is thankful for his help with student loans, but she's not sure what practical differences he's made for the larger Latino community in Milwaukee. I just don't see anything changing. I, I mean... I mean, we are where we are right now. <laughs>
Nuno, whose family is from Peru, says relatives have been deported under Biden and complains how difficult it is to gain asylum. And like many Americans, she also worries about a rising cost of living. So she's not sure if she'll vote for Biden again. If Republicans have some good points, I am open to voting for them. But it really, really has to persuade me to really choose them. Wisconsin is a swing state, but not known for the power of the Latino vote. But there are rapidly growing voting population in a state with such minuscule margins that even a small shift can have a big impact on national politics. Because most Latinos are not committed democratic ideologues. Ben Marquez is a political science professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who specializes in Latino studies. He says a large majority of Latinos will support Democrats, but that's not the point. There are more than 180,000 eligible Latino voters in the state. Biden won the state by less than 25,000 votes. In 2016, Trump did the same. Marcus says that's an opportunity for Republicans. They don't, they don't need to win you know, the Latino vote. They just need to take a big chunk out of the, uh, the traditional Democratic vote. That's what Republicans are trying to do. Recent trends show that more and more Hispanics and Latinos are becoming conservative. Hilaria DeLorean is chairman of the Milwaukee County Republican Party. He's been walking the streets of Lincoln Village and other minority neighbors with a message that conservatives have more to offer on issues like jobs and high food prices, issues that are important to the community. You know, we're not gonna win Milwaukee outright. It's impossible. It's just a Democrat city, but we can increase that voter percentage to, you know, help the rest of the state uh, give them breathing room. Republicans feel they don't need to win a majority of Latinos or even a lot more. They just want to win enough to close the narrow gap. Democrats and Latino activists, though, are still confident that they can win on policy. I would be concerned about Republican outreach if it were happening in a vacuum. But um, unless they change their political stance on immigration and on workers' rights, um, they will not make inroads here. That's Christine Newman-Ortiz, the executive director of Voces de la Frontera Action. They've helped lead aggressive outreach efforts, registering new voters and increasing participation. She points to the Latino turnout to help re-elect Democratic Governor Tony Evers as a testament to their efforts, as well as their work helping elect a new progressive judge to the state Supreme Court just this year. Democrats know they'll win the Latino vote, especially with more young Latinos coming of age. The question is, though, will they retain enough to keep the state blue? One illustration of this is that in 2020, 18,000 Latinos in Wisconsin turned 18 and are U.S. citizens. That's the margin of victory. But still, she says, Latinos in the community need to see more from Biden. I know from the work that we did, it was not enough to say how cruel Trump was. They wanted to know what does Biden have to offer. Mario Juarez isn't sure if he likes what Biden has to offer anymore. The problem is that I don't see any change. Juarez is building a new patio and fire pit in his backyard. He runs a landscape architecture business and goes to college at Milwaukee Area Tech. He says he would have voted for Biden three years ago, but wasn't a citizen yet. And since becoming one, he's spent the last couple of years exploring his options. I, I thought because of the color of my skin or, or who I identify as, um, I had to vote a specific way. He's 24, Latino, and gay. He's also a small business owner. 
and he's more concerned about jobs and the economy. And he also worries about what he calls Biden's woke agenda and efforts to elevate a gender ideology. I used to be very liberal, but I think as of recently, I've kind of opened my mind a lot more and I've really looked into my core values and who I am as a person. And he says he's feeling right now that his core values align more with the Republican Party. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Milwaukee. New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu wants to change the direction his party's headed in, not by running for president. He's determined to make sure former President Donald Trump doesn't end up as his party's next nominee. Republicans are trying to save America. Donald Trump's trying to save himself. Here's Scott Simon's conversation with Governor Sununu on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. And thanks for listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Ahead in the next half hour, the Catholic Archdiocese of San Francisco files for bankruptcy protection after the state opened up a special window for sex abuse claims. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com slash NPR. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the week on an upswing. The Dow gained three quarters of a percent. The S&P picked up almost 0.7 percent. NASDAQ jumped almost 1 percent. In local business news, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court today ruled against the online trading company Robinhood in its court fight with Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin. Galvin accused the company of violating state law by using overly aggressive tactics to attract inexperienced investors and encouraging the continuous use of its app. The court ruled the state has the authority to uphold its fiduciary rule, which says investment brokers are required to work in their customers' best financial interest so the state's case against Robinhood can move forward. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC, using the power of visuals, presence, and storytelling to help speakers connect with audiences. More at presentationsbydeck.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Geo Swaby. On view now, learn more at pem.org. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. 
There will be some showers, maybe some thunderstorms tonight with a low around 68 degrees. Then we'll have a chance of more showers and thunderstorms tomorrow, otherwise mostly cloudy with a high approaching 80. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been called one of the most important criminal cases in American history. Here in Washington, D.C., the Justice Department's election conspiracy trial against former President Donald Trump will unfold at a courthouse steps away from the U.S. Capitol. Federal Judge Tanya Chutkin will oversee the case. NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson has this profile. The 62-year-old judge made her name at the Public Defender Service. That's an elite corps of defense attorneys fighting for low-income people accused of crimes. Retired trial lawyer Michelle Roberts got her start there, too. It was as competitive to get a position at PDS as it was to get a position at a major law firm. People who were committed to doing that work were all eager to work at PDS. Back in the 1990s, Tanya Chutkin established herself as a force in the courtroom. She pressed the Justice Department to meet its burden of proof for homicide and sexual assault cases. Again, Michelle Roberts. As far as a trial lawyer, you know, one of the best that's come out of the agency for sure. Chutkin knows her way around a courtroom. She handled more than 40 trials as an attorney. President Obama nominated her to serve as a federal judge in 2013. The following year, she won confirmation in a 95-0 vote by the Senate. On the bench, she's handled cases involving an unregistered Russian agent living in the U.S., efforts to challenge the lethal injection protocol for people on federal death row, and rioters who breached the Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021. Chudkin's known for crafting some tough punishments in those cases. Bob Driscoll's a defense attorney in Washington, D.C. She was definitely high. She's definitely on the high end of the range of those people. She's, in fact, I think still might be the only, and not the only, she's one of the only judges that has several times gone above the recommendation made by the government. Former President Donald Trump now faces four felony charges for trying to overturn the last election and helping create an environment that led to violence on January 6th. That case landed on Chutkin's docket by random assignment earlier this month. Former D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine remembers his first reaction. So as a friend and someone who I you know, really look up to, I immediately worried. Racine met the judge 34 years ago when she was his summer mentor at a law firm and he was still a law student. My second reaction was that there could not have been a better judge for this matter because Judge Shutkin is a indefatigable worker and she is as fair a person as I've met. Another friend, Natalie Ludway, first met Chutkin at their high school, an elite all-girls institution in Kingston, Jamaica, where Chutkin was born. They reconnected decades later as attorneys in Washington over good books and better food. Like a curried shrimp dish, Ludway still wants to know how to prepare. When you take the robe off and 
the lights aren't glaring at her. You know, she has many friends and she's a good friend. And it's because she's funny. She's very, very quick-witted. She has a big laugh and loves a good joke. Ludaway says the judge has a firm sense of herself and she's not going to be bullied. Chutkin has already warned the former president that his First Amendment rights must yield to restrictions that bar him from threatening potential witnesses. But crafting a punishment for Trump, who's running for office again, will be tough. Defense lawyer Bob Driscoll. I think that is going to be the ultimate challenge for Judge Chutkin. As we all understand, I mean, in most of us in normal cases, the judge has all the control. And for 99.9% of us, an admonition from the court is just kind of followed per se. I think in this case, there's going to be a key question for her is going to be the or what. Since Trump began making disparaging social media posts about the judge, a Texas woman has been charged with threatening Judkin. Security officials are on heightened alert, but Ludaway says her friend is going about her business. I mean, Tanya can run 6.5 miles like it's nothing. And she's making time for priorities like books and exercise. I hope that the marshals who are with her are in tip-top shape because I know she's still running. The judge will make her first big decision in the Trump case on Monday when she says she'll set a trial date. Prosecutors say they're ready this January 2024. Trump wants to wait until 2026. Six lawyers interviewed for this story said they're confident the trial will happen next year before the presidential election. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The president of Spain's soccer federation is refusing to resign despite widespread criticism after his behavior following Spain's victory over England at the Women's World Cup final last weekend. Here to catch us up on the latest is NPR's Laurel Wamsley. Hi, Laurel. Hi, Elsa. Okay, let's just start at the very beginning. What is all of this about? So last weekend, Spain beat England in the final of the Women's World Cup in Sydney. And afterwards, during the ceremony where Spain's players were getting their medals, all of the players were shaking the hands of Luis Rubiales. He's the head of Spain's soccer federation. And Rubiales is kissing their cheeks and pulling them into these tight hugs, sometimes lifting them off the ground. And then when star player Jenny Hermoso walks up, you see Rubiales hug her tightly and then grab her head and kiss her full on the mouth. There's... Also video of Rubiales making a crotch-grabbing gesture in the dignitary's box. And then after the game, there's a live stream from the locker room, and Hermoso is asked about the kiss. And she says, I didn't like it, but what could I do? Wow. All right, then. What's been the response to all of this so far? I would call it immediate condemnation from nearly all sides. Before the team was even home from Australia, Rubiales and the Soccer Federation were scrambling to do crisis management. Spain's politicians in particular have been very critical. The acting prime minister said Rubiales' apologies were not sufficient, and a deputy prime minister called for his resignation. Okay, and then I understand that there was some kind of emergency meeting today where Rubiales tried to defend his actions. What did he say exactly? That's right. So the Football Federation in Spain had this emergency meeting, and Rubiales is the Federation's president. He got up and he gave this speech where he claimed that Hermoso had given her consent for the kiss and that this was a witch hunt by, quote, false feminists. Um, And then he flatly refused to resign. He said he will not resign. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. He said that five times, and as you can hear, there was applause from those in the room. That's the other members of the federation, which is largely men. And among those who applauded were the coaches of Spain's men's and women's teams. Okay, so what happens next at this point? Can he be forced out? 
Well, Spain's players are furious about what happened at this meeting and his refusal to resign. So the players union, FootPro, put out a statement just this afternoon in which Jenny Hermoso said that she never consented to the kiss. And in a letter signed by the entire Spanish World Cup squad and at least two dozen more soccer players, they asked for both sporting and structural changes to happen. And they refused to play again for the national team at all unless the current leaders are removed. The government of Spain had already announced it had started proceedings to suspend Rubiales. Uh, so his case is going to the country's sport court, which if it finds that he violated laws or regulations about sexist acts, it could declare him unfit to hold office. And then meanwhile, FIFA, the world governing body of soccer, announced yesterday that it's opening its own disciplinary proceedings against Rubiales. So uh, just to put this in context, many of the top players who would have been on the World Cup squad this year had already refused to play for Spain's coach, Jorge Vilda. So this is a program that's been in turmoil for a while and somehow managed to win a World Cup anyhow. But with all of this happening, it certainly looks like Rubiales' days are numbered. That is NPR's Laurel Wamsley. Thank you, Laurel. You're welcome, Elsa. This is NPR News. And thanks for being with us here on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next half hour, we'll have the latest on Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's plans to address the public health and safety crisis in the tent encampment at Mass and Cass. And we'll tell you about a genetically engineered see-through squid. Scientists have made it almost as transparent as the water it's in so they can watch its brain activity and other internal functions in action. Tonight will bring some scattered showers and thunderstorms, temps in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, a chance of more rain and storms with a high around 79 degrees. Right now, it's 70 in Boston with some light rain. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says there's still a long way to go to bring inflation under control. NPR's Scott Horsley says Powell spoke to a gathering of economists and central bankers today in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Powell says it's encouraging that inflation has cooled significantly from more than 9% last summer to just over 3% last month. But the Fed chairman cautions inflation is still too high. He stressed that he and his colleagues are determined to get it back down to the Fed's target of 2%. We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. Powell says there's still considerable uncertainty in the economic outlook, adding he and his colleagues have to balance the risks of raising interest rates too much or not doing enough to bring prices under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Former President Donald Trump immediately went on the offense last night after being released from the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, where he and 18 others were indicted on charges including racketeering, conspiracy to commit forgery, and 
filing false documents Trump took to social media, pledging to fight back against the criminal charges in Georgia. But as NPR's Franco Ordonez tells us, Trump's mounting legal problems don't appear to be slowing down his bid for re-election. Indictments are just the beginning. Last night, we covered the trip to the jail. He got the mugshot. And, you know, this is just one of four indictments. The first hearing related to January 6th is on Monday on federal charges. And he's not stopping run for president. I mean, within hours, his super PAC was circulating his mugshot to stoke support and raise money. Mm. And apparently, he's returned to Twitter, or as it's X, as it's called now, posting his mugshot. It's the first time he's posted in more than two years. NPR's Franco Ordonez. Stocks finished higher across the board to end the week on Wall Street. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Some health insurance companies in Massachusetts plan to continue coverage of Narcan when it becomes available over the counter in the next few weeks. Narcan is a well-known brand of naloxone, the drug that reverses an opioid overdose. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has the latest. Narcan is moving from a prescription to non-prescription drug to make it more available. But health insurance doesn't typically cover non-prescription meds. In this case, some insurers say they will because Narcan could be unaffordable for many people, like those Kim Powers serves on Cape Cod. Powers runs the mobile harm reduction program Access Hope. What's a life worth? A kid's 50 bucks. Nobody can tell me that a person who uses drugs, life's not worth 50 bucks. Insurers that do not plan to cover over-the-counter Narcan say they will cover other versions of naloxone to ensure members have access to this life-saving medication. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. UMass Memorial Health is reinstating some masking requirements following a dramatic increase in COVID cases among employees. Staff will have to wear masks in clinical areas when working with patients. UMass Memorial is strongly encouraging outpatients and visitors to wear masks. Officials with the health system say they will reevaluate the masking plans in four weeks. 72 cities and towns across the state are receiving federal grants totaling nearly $65 million for housing and community development projects. Chelsea will use some of the funding to support programs for migrants, teenagers, and seniors. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll helped announce the awards from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development today. She said the competitive community development block grants are critical to helping cities and towns provide resources for residents. Well, it looks like more wet weather for tonight. We'll have a low around 68 degrees. It'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow. We might see some more showers, maybe a thunderstorm. Temps will be in the upper 70s. Sunday looks like the weekend day for outdoor plans. It should be partly sunny and in the low to mid 70s. It should be even sunnier on Monday with temps in the mid 70s and mostly cloudy on Tuesday. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. 
This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is outlining what she says is a new phase in dealing with the longstanding problems stemming from addiction and homelessness in the area of the city known as Mass and Cass. The mayor's new strategy includes an ordinance she'll file next week. It would allow police to remove tents from the area near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. It will need approval from the city council to go forward. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following this story and joins us. Hi, Deb. Hello. So what are the specifics of the mayor's ordinance? Well, the mayor says the ordinance would allow police to remove the tents of people who've been offered housing and storage for their belongings and transportation to a place to stay off the streets. Police and social workers would go to the tents. They would help find services for those inside. And once that happened, they would then remove the structures. Wu says basically she has to act because increasing violence near an encampment on Atkinson Street has resulted in public health outreach teams no longer going to that area. When we are taking such serious steps to curb the public safety concerns, that means that there will be some serious disruption as well in the dynamic for people who have been used to gathering and congregating at Mass and Cass. And for those who are conducting criminal activity, that disruption is um, certainly warranted and we will not be tolerating illegal activity. Uh, Deb, didn't the city face criticism and legal action before when trying to have police take away the tents? Yes and yes. Uh, But Wu says this time it would be different. I want to be clear and um, acknowledge that the city of Boston's so-called law enforcement sweeps in the past have not been successful. That is not what we are trying to replicate. Wu says now there's more infrastructure in place to direct people to housing and services to get them help. She also says there are ways to ensure that people's belongings are protected as required by law. The American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts says it's going to wait to comment in detail until it sees the ordinance next week. But it did issue a statement saying that unhoused people have due process rights and, quote, Cities and towns cannot target people for criminal law enforcement operations just because they are sleeping and taking shelter outside. And the mayor's new strategy also includes a plan to put up 30 temporary shelter beds at the Boston Public Health Commission's offices on Mass Ave. Is that already being criticized, I understand? Already, already. Uh, Today, we'll emphasize those beds would be temporary, but the neighborhood group, the South End Forum, has already written to city councilors urging them not to approve this new strategy of the mayor's. Uh, Steve Fox, who is with the South End Forum, says a temporary shelter on Mass Ave is just moving problems to another nearby area of the city. You're moving them out of Mass and Cass, but you haven't accommodated where they're going to go. And, you know, they're not going to disappear. And that's the most important thing that I don't think has yet been addressed. Of course, Fox is concerned about people then congregating or perhaps moving tents to the south end. The mayor's plan, we should say, Lynn, also involves closing the engagement center on Atkinson Street, which draws about 200 to 300 people a day. That center offers meals, showers, medical and harm reduction services, and information about treatment and housing and programs. And the services there would go to the Mass Ave location where the temporary shelter is. And just to clarify, that would be a temporary closing of that engagement center? That's right.
And local law enforcement leaders were on hand for Mayor Wu's announcement today. A little over a year and a half ago, the mayor said she would approach Mass and Cass as a public health crisis, not a public safety problem. So is this a change for her? Well, the mayor today was accompanied by Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox, Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden. And Commissioner Cox said police have seen double-digit increases in gun arrests and assaults in the Mass and Cass area. And he says the tents are helping to shield criminal activity. DA Hayden said he received a million more dollars for his so-called services over sentences program, which provides treatment and services to those charged with low-level nonviolent crimes in exchange for perhaps dropping those charges. So Wu says these are examples of the infrastructure needed to help, and this isn't a change from a public health strategy. She says it's a new effort to deal with public safety concerns. Mm, It's a tough situation all around. WBUR's Deborah Becker, thank you. You're welcome. This week, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of San Francisco filed for bankruptcy protection. Here in California, it joins the Diocese of Oakland and the Diocese of Santa Rosa, which also filed for Chapter 11 protection earlier this year. And the Diocese of San Diego says it plans to file later this year. The church says these moves are because of an overwhelming number of claims of clergy sex abuse. Join me now is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Hi, Jason. Hello. Okay, so three bankruptcy filings here in California alone within just a few months, another one likely on the way. What is going on here? Well, the short answer is the Me Too movement. Back in 2019, the California legislature passed a law that created a special window to bring older abuse claims outside the normal statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. Now, this window, which closed at the end of last year, was in response to the Me Too movement, and it provided an opportunity for older survivors of clergy sex abuse to bring claims, too. And similar windows were opened in several other states as well, including... New York and Louisiana. Okay, so survivors brought legal claims. A lot of claims. The Archdiocese of San Francisco says that it's now facing more than 500 civil suits alleging clergy sex abuse. And in a press release, the church says it's filing for Chapter 11 to halt the legal actions while it figures out how to pay for these abuse claims. As you know, bankruptcy is a way for the church to avoid more than 500 Mm -hmm. individual trials, which would be extremely expensive. And settlements are usually dramatically lower than what courts might award in in monetary damages. Mm -hmm. But critics of this move say because bankruptcy stops the legal discovery process, that means we may never know the full truth of what happened in these cases. Exactly. But let me ask you, Jason, it's been more than, what, two decades since stories broke about widespread clergy sex abuse within the Catholic Church. Why are we still hearing about it so many years later? Right. Remember, there was that grand jury abuse investigation report out of Illinois earlier this year. Mm -hmm. There was the one in Pennsylvania in 2018. The answer is the more investigations, the more discoveries of abuse. Mm -hmm. Now, the San Francisco Archdiocese says most of the claims brought recently are for abuse that allegedly took place more than 30 years ago and involved pre who are now dead or no longer in ministry. And the church says it mostly sees older abuse cases because it's put better safeguards in place. Wait, is that true? Are we seeing fewer cases of recent abuse? Well, now the advocacy group Child USA takes the church to task for relying on this idea that there are fewer recent 
cases of abuse. Because of something called delayed disclosure, the University of Pennsylvania professor Marcy Hamilton is founder and CEO of Child USA, and she says we'll have to wait decades to know about abuse happening to children today. Victims on average don't come forward until they are around 50 years old. So when the bishops are trying to say that this is all in the past, it's way behind us, and we have completely cleaned house, the truth is that's a lie. Now, in a peer-reviewed study of abuse prevention measures in place around the country, Child USA found not one diocese scored above 50% compliance with best practices, not one. Those are measures like never allowing a child to be alone in a room with an adult or thorough background checks on clergy. And findings like that mean that states like California might in the future again open a window to the statute of limitations so that abuse survivors ready to come forward then could try to seek some measure of justice. That is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Thank you so much, Jason. You're welcome. For most of us, it would take magic to become invisible. But for some lucky, tiny squid, all it took was a little genetic tweaking. As part of our weekly Dose of Wonder series, NPR's John Hamilton explains how scientists created a see-through squid. The squid come from the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Josh Rosenthal is a senior scientist there. He says even the animal's caretakers can't keep track of them. They're really hard to spot. We know we put it in this aquarium, but they might look for a half hour before they can actually see it. They're that transparent. Almost invisible. Carrie Alberton, a fellow at the lab, says studying these creatures has been transformative. They are so strikingly see-through. It changes the way you interpret what's going on in this animal, being able to see completely through the body. Scientists can watch the squid's three hearts beating in synchrony or see its brain cells at work. And it's all thanks to a gene-editing technology called CRISPR. A few years ago, Rosenthal and Alberton decided they could use CRISPR to create a special octopus or squid for research. Carrie and I are highly biased. We both love cephalopods, right? And we have for our, our entire careers. So they focused on the hummingbird bobtail squid. It's smaller than a thumb and shaped like a dumpling. Like other cephalopods, it has a relatively large and sophisticated brain. Rosenthal takes me to an aquarium to show me what the squid looks like before its genes are altered. Here is our hummingbird bobtail squid. You can see him right there in the bottom, just kind of sitting there, hunkered down in the sand. At night, it'll come out and hunt and be much more mobile. At the moment, the squid is camouflaged to blend in with the sand. That's possible because of organs in its skin called chromatophores. They contain pigment that can be manipulated to change the squid's appearance. The scientists wanted to create a bobtail squid without any pigment. And Alberton says she and Rosenthal knew that in other squid, pigment relies on a gene called TDO. We said this is an obvious first target. And we went and we tried to knock out TDO and nothing happened. So we said, okay, what could have gone wrong? Alberton says it turned out that these squid have a second gene that also affects pigment. We were able to identify that gene. And when we targeted both of them, lo and behold, we were able to get albinos. And because squid have clear blood, thin skin, and no bones, the albinos are all but transparent. These days, there's a whole room in the lab devoted to creating see-through squid. 
Albertson takes me to a technician who's working on an embryo smaller than a BB pellet. And so you can see under the microscope, we use pairs of forceps to tear away the jelly layers. Next, the technician will use a quartz needle to inject genetic material that will delete the pigment genes and create a transparent squid. Alberton and Rosenthal knew that these animals would be of interest to brain scientists, so they called Ivan Soltej at Stanford and Chris Neal at the University of Oregon. We said, hey, you guys, we have this incredible animal. Want to look at its brain? And they jumped on it. Soltej and Neal inserted a fluorescent dye into the animal's brains. The dye glows when it's near brain cells that are active. Then the scientists projected images onto a screen in front of the squid. And Alberton says brain areas involved in vision began to glow. The evidence that they were able to actually get from this and look at activity in an unperturbed squid uh, made all of us um, just kind of jump through our skins. It was, it was really exciting. Because it suggests that her see-through squid will help scientists understand not only cephalopods, but all living creatures. John Hamilton, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Just after the top of the hour, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says he and his colleagues are committed to getting inflation all the way down to 2%, even if it takes higher interest rates. We'll have scattered showers and thunderstorms tonight, temps in the upper 60s. Tomorrow will be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain and thunderstorms. It'll be in the upper 70s. It's looking brighter for Sunday. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. Angie Kim didn't know English when she and her family first moved to the U.S. from Korea. Even just that limited, temporary inability to speak traumatized me. And it later moved her to create characters who can't speak, but still have much to tell. Like the teenager in her novel, Happiness Falls, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The teenage sex comedy is a classic cinematic art form in America, right? Think Superbad, American Pie, Risky Business. But you know, in the new movie Bottoms, writer-director Emma Seligman turns the classic genre on its head in an absurd queer twist. The movie centers around best friends and general high school nobodies PJ and Josie, played by Rachel Sennett and Ayo Adebari. They want to get the attention of their crushes, so they start an all-girls fight club at their school. We bond, we share, we connect. We're punching each other. Adrenaline is flowing. Next thing you know, Isabel and Brittany are kissing us on the mouse. I talked to Seligman earlier, and I asked her, what was the movie that she set out to make? I think I just wanted to make something for queer audiences, especially for queer teens with horny, shallow, uh, hormonal, (laughs) 
flawed characters yeah. and also a queer movie that is um, in all the right ways stupid. Okay, we'd be misleading them. Guys do that all the time, okay? That's the point of feminism. That's not the point of feminism. You also don't care about feminism. Your favorite show is Entourage. You're missing the point. I don't really think I am. We don't I love that. seeing representation in all kinds of ways, but I'm tired of having to watch darker queer stories or you know, queer stories where I have to think a lot about my identity and, and the dark parts of it. I just wanted to create something mindless and fun. Well, I mean, as you totally accurately point out, horny teenagers has been like such the theme of so many comedies going back decades. But I was wondering, was there any part of you when you were writing this with Rachel Sennett, one of the co-stars, that felt you had to hold back a little on the raunchiness because... This is a story about horny lesbian teenagers, a part of you that felt maybe you couldn't go full on raunchy with teenage lesbians because maybe audiences still aren't ready. Was there any part of you thinking that, worried about that? I don't think as we were writing it, I was worried about it. But I think I look back on our writing process and see that I was I was holding back in terms of writing the same level of raunch that you've seen in straight sex comedies for mm -hmm. a long time. And I think that just came from the fact that I haven't seen it too much on screen, particularly with, with queer teens. So yeah, I do think I was worried about going too far to a certain degree because you also, you know, when you're portraying an identity on screen that hasn't been portrayed for very long in a variety of ways, you're walking that fine line of wanting to, you know, not offend anyone and wanting to have sort of honorable queer characters that represent our community well. But at the same time, you want them to be real and flawed and messy. And um, fun. And fun. Yeah. And, and human. Yeah. yeah. It's tricky. Well, on some level, do you think absurdist comedy is a way to get people more comfortable with ideas that they've been uncomfortable with in the past? That's such a good question. Yeah, I, I do think so. I think that when you're just throwing everything up in the air and you're telling an audience, this is going to be in a world that you haven't seen often, where it's a heightened version of our world where everything goes and characters can get away with a lot more than they can in our world. Could the ugly, untalented gays please report to the principal's office? Guess that's you guys. Hello, Principal Myers. First of all, I want to say God bless. Shut up, you know why you're here. I don't, actually. For committing a crime against Jeff, our quarterback, and the most good-looking, all-American, red-blooded, muscular man this town has ever seen. Sir, I think it allows for bigger risks, you know, when it comes yeah. to showing stuff on screen you haven't seen before. I get the sex comedy part of this film, but tell me more about why you wanted to see these girls punch each other, to literally have <laughs> blood-splattered faces in this story. Talk about that. Well, I think initially I really wanted some sort of hero's arc that occurs in a lot of other teen movies like Scott Pilgrim or Kick-Ass or Attack the Block or even movies like The Goonies, you know, where there's typically a group of boys getting together to save the day. Mm -hmm. But I think as we were making it, I just realized like how cathartic it felt to show girls like angsty teen girls you know, with a lot of hormones, with a lot of um, anger, yeah. you know, taking it out in this empowering totally. way that felt unexpected. I think so much of the time girl power or female empowerment on screen looks a very particular kind of way and is quite intellectual. 
and super positive and super sanitized. And so there was just something really fun and, and liberating about showing these girls kick the out of each other. I love that. You know, the casting in this film was awesome. Can we talk about Marshawn Lynch as the girl's teacher? He's, of course, the former NFL running back, Super Bowl champion. And he is hilarious in this role. Did you write the role with Marshawn Lynch in mind? No, we didn't write it with Marshawn in mind, but we definitely hoped we could have someone unexpected in the role, someone that would make the audience surprised and be confused a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I'd seen Marshawn in an episode of Murderville where he improvised the whole episode oh. and thought he was so hilarious. And we just offered it to him. And I think he was really confused uh, as to why we thought he'd be perfect in this movie in particular, but he ended up being so good in it. He's one of the best improvisers I've ever seen at work. And most of, not most of, but I'd say about half of his dialogue is improvised. Really? Um, he's, oh. Yeah. He's really, really funny and really talented. I think anyone who knows him from his NFL days and, and the press he would do or not do knows how funny he is and how absurd he is. Um, but he really shined on set for sure well about casting I, I do want to talk about you know authenticity because there is a lot of pressure now on filmmakers to cast actors whose lived experiences are relevant to their on-screen roles you've talked about how with queer actors and roles specifically this is kind of complicated can, can you explain why I think it's complicated because Often the general public will assume an actor is straight when they have not identified their sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think that when you're casting, it's uh, uncomfortable and I think like not okay to ask someone what their sexual you know, preferences are or to ask them what their sexual identity is. That it's really important, I think, that we uplift queer actors, you know, and are thinking of them and having them in mind when, when it comes to casting for queer characters. But I also think that it's really unfair to assume that every actor who has not publicly um, identified themselves is straight. Right. So I think that's part of the reason that it's tricky. But it's really an important conversation to be having, I think, because so much of the time once an actor does come out, even in 2023, it's like straight roles are off the table for them. Hmm. So I, I think that it's a, an important dance. Emma Seligman directed the new movie Bottoms out today. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
Thanks so much for being with 90.9 WBUR on this Friday afternoon. Well, do you like the sounds, sights, information, and experiences we bring you? The WBUR journalism you rely on is only possible with your feedback. So tell us what's on your mind. Go to WBUR.org survey and let us hear your voice. Thank you. We can expect some showers, maybe a thunderstorm tonight, lows in the upper 60s. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and storms tomorrow. Temps will approach 80. Then Sunday should be partly sunny with a high around 73 degrees. Monday, even more sunshine with temps in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says he's committed to getting inflation all the way down to 2% even if it takes higher interest rates to get there. We'll have the latest out of the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium on this Friday, August 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Atlanta's Fulton County Jail, where former President Trump surrendered yesterday, is overcrowded. Many incarcerated people are not receiving basic care and several died recently. The sheriff says he needs a new jail. It's a human crisis. I'm really, really tired of begging for money to do my job. Also ahead, Maui's wildfires destroyed some of the only low-income housing in one of the most expensive markets in the U.S. And high mortgage rates lock some homeowners with low rates into staying in their houses. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Federal Reserve says there is still work to do to lower inflation. NPR's David Gurra reports during a closely watched speech today, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the central bank is prepared to keep raising interest rates if need be. It's the Fed Reserve's job to bring inflation down to our 2% goal, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said in a speech at a conference of economists and other central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And he emphasized that's what policymakers at the central bank intend to do. In his comments, Powell pointed out how much progress they've made taming high inflation, but he acknowledged it's a very difficult undertaking. We are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. In such circumstances, risk management considerations are critical. And the Fed will continue to make interest rate decisions based on economic data. Its next meeting is in September. David Gura. NPR News. The Kremlin is officially denying it had any role in a plane crash that is believed to have killed Russian mercenary leader Evgeny Prezhgozhin. Russian President Vladimir Putin's spokesman rejecting allegations that the Kremlin was behind the crash. The private jet with 10 people aboard crashed Wednesday. Prezhgozhin was among those listed as being on board. The mercenary leader led a brief but shocking mutiny in Russia two months ago. His Wagner Group militia was widely feared not just in Ukraine but also in Africa and Syria. Hundreds of thousands of people remain without power in parts of Michigan after severe storms hit that state last night. 
Michigan Radio's Doug Trabu reports the storm is being blamed for the deaths of at least five people. Winds of about 80 miles per hour knocked down trees and tore roofs off buildings. The Ingham County Sheriff's Office says when the storm passed over a section of an interstate, one person died, several were severely injured, and 25 vehicles were damaged. In the capital city of Lansing, another person died when a tree fell on a home. Flooding forced several closures on major freeways in Metro Detroit, that part of the state had already seen flooding and power outages from storms earlier this week. For NPR News, I'm Doug Trabu in Ann Arbor. Members of the United Auto Workers Union have overwhelmingly given their leaders authorization to call strikes against the major automakers if needed. While the union has said some votes were still being tallied, they said the measure so far has been approved by 97% of members who voted. That means a strike could be called against one or all of the so-called Big Three, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Contracts between around 146,000 UAW members and the three car companies expire at 11.59 p.m. on September the 14th. Wall Street managed to pull out its first winning week in four weeks. The Dow up 247 points to 34,346. The Nasdaq rose 126 points. The S&P 500 gained 29 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The state commission charged with creating a database of police discipline is acknowledging the list it released this week isn't complete. The Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission, or POST, says some departments are missing from the data. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. Post said in a statement Friday that corrections need to be made to the database. The commission says Brookline, Everett, and Cambridge are missing from the list of officer discipline and that they're working with the departments to make fixes. Brookline officials told WBUR they sent disciplinary information to the commission back in March, yet no Brookline officers appear on the public data set. Among those missing is the former police chief, Ashley Gonzalez. He was fired from his job after after a sexual harassment investigation, yet he does not show up on Post's list. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is outlining a new approach to help those with substance use disorder and mental health issues in the area known as Mass and Cass. A main part of the plan is to give police authority to quickly remove the tents and tarps not far from the intersection of Massachusetts Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Police currently have to give 48 hours notice, and Commissioner Michael Cox says that's not working. We're seeking authority to shut down the spaces and creating, that are creating unsanitary and dangerous conditions and supporting the drug market that goes on there as well as the other criminal activities. The city council would need to pass an ordinance on that, which the mayor is going to submit next week. The city also plans to open a temporary shelter space with 30 beds in a Boston Public Health Commission building on Mass Ave. A New Hampshire man today was sentenced to 42 years in prison for fatally shooting his pastor. 28-year-old Brandon Castiglione was found guilty of killing Pastor Luis Garcia of the New England Pentecostal Ministries in Pelham in 2019. Prosecutors say there was no clear motive for the shooting. When sports, the Red Sox face the Dodgers in Boston tonight. The game marks the return of Mookie Betts to Fenway for the first time since he was traded to L.A. in 2020. Some showers, maybe some thunderstorms tonight with a low around 68 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Today, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said the battle to curb inflation, quote, still has a long way to go. Powell delivered a highly anticipated speech this morning in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He stressed that the central bank is determined to get prices under control, even if that means pushing interest rates even higher and leaving them up for a while. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to fill us in. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. The Fed has raised interest rates a lot already. Does this mean it's not working? Yeah, Powell and his colleagues have raised interest rates a lot, 11 rate hikes since March of last year. That's the most aggressive series of increases since Paul Volcker was Fed chairman back in the early 1980s. And inflation has come down a lot uh, from more than 9% last summer to just over 3% last month. But prices are still climbing faster than the Fed would like. So Powell says he and his colleagues are not going to take their foot off the brake. It is the Fed's job to bring inflation down to our 2% goal and we will do so. Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high. Powell says the Fed will keep interest rates up until he and his colleagues are confident that prices are under control, and if they need to raise rates even higher than they are now, they'll do so. How did financial, how did financial markets react today? Yeah, there were some gyrations in the stock market both during and after Powell's speech as investors tried to suss out where interest rates might be heading. Ultimately, stocks ended up for the day. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained about 250 points. Frankly, there wasn't anything new in Powell's speech today. This is the same message the Fed chairman's been giving for some time now. Uh, it may be starting to sink in at last. I don't think there's any real mystery about where the Fed wants to wind up with inflation back at 2%. If there are questions about how it gets there, it's because this is a road we haven't been down before. You know, First the pandemic and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine have put the economy into uncharted territory, and Powell says he and his colleagues are just trying to feel their way. We are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. We will proceed carefully as we decide whether to tighten further or instead to hold the policy rate constant and await further data. Right now, markets are betting the Fed will keep interest rates steady when policymakers meet next month. But Powell's not making any promises. Uh, it's going to depend on what the jobs numbers show next week, what the inflation numbers show two weeks after that. One thing you are not hearing from Powell, though, is any suggestion the Fed plans to cut interest rates anytime soon. Is there a danger of pushing interest rates too high? Sure. Uh, the risk is that in order to get inflation down, you wind up tipping the economy into recession. Uh, now, when Powell spoke at Jackson Hole a year ago, he kind of discounted that threat, arguing, look, inflation's sky high, and if you don't get it under control, the economy's not going to work for anybody. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to have to crack down, so we might as well just bite the bullet and do it now. A year later... We're in a very different spot, uh, and Powell's comments today reflected that. I inflation is a lot lower. Interest rates are a lot higher. Now, Powell says, every additional move on interest rates requires a more delicate balancing act. Doing too little could allow above-target inflation to become entrenched. Doing too much could also do unnecessary harm to the economy. Now, a survey of business economists that came out this week suggests that, for the moment at least, the Fed's doing a pretty good job with that balancing act. Nearly three-quarters of the economists surveyed said the Fed's interest rate policy is about right. What's more, almost 70 percent said they are somewhat confident the Fed can achieve its soft landing, that is, getting inflation under control without a spike in unemployment. That's up from only about 30 percent who thought a soft landing was likely back in March. And PR Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome.
In Maui, the devastating fire in the seaside town of Lahaina has brought fears of a land grab. Hawaii already had a severe housing shortage, and the disaster made it worse. As NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports, there's a push to make sure that rebuilding Lahaina doesn't drive out those who call it home. In the parking lot of a resort hotel, Jeremy De Los Reyes piles his construction tools in a pickup truck. After he and his wife's house burned down, these tools and their three dogs are about all they have left. They're staying at this hotel temporarily. The sites where De Los Reyes had construction work are also gone, so he's been offering pro bono repairs. I can't do anything, and if I stay home, I just go crazy. De Los Reyes says his family has been in Hawaii for seven generations. Since the fire, three realtors have called. Sorry for your loss, they say. Would you be interested in selling your home? He hangs up. I'm terrified of, of us losing property to these land grabbers, to these speculators. Lahaina land is valuable. Delos Reyes lived in a house his parents bought in 1974. It wasn't much then, but a worsening housing shortage has made Hawaii the most expensive market in the country. So at my last uh, appraisal, my house came in at, I believe, just under 800000 and that was three years ago. As a high school teacher who works construction, he says he could never pay that. Many here can't afford their own house and squeeze in with extended family. Native Hawaiians have borne the brunt of this housing crunch. In fact, losing their land has been a trauma stretching back more than a century to when the U.S. overthrew the Hawaiian kingdom, says Native rights activist Kikai Keahi. There was a huge land grab that displaced many Hawaiian families, and we suffer from that today. It's generational. He says the fire seemed designed to stoke that tension. Lahaina was the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom, most who lost homes, he says, were middle and low income. Nearby vacation rentals and tourist resorts are untouched. They just continue on with their life and we suck in this and we worry about if we're going to make it through. That worry is well-founded. Shannon Van Zant studies disaster recovery at Texas A&M University. As soon as she saw those wrenching photos of Lahaina's destruction... I immediately thought oh, this is never going to be the same. They're never going to be able to bring back uh, what they had. She says rebuilding after an extreme weather disaster is expensive. People get priced out. And a historic and cultural site like this, it's especially attractive to developers. You don't expect it to ever become available. And so it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for them, frankly. Native Hawaiian activists Kiahi and others have pushed for a seat at the table in deciding how to rebuild. Hawaii Governor Josh Green says he gets it. The land in Lahaina is reserved for its people as they return and rebuild. And I have instructed the Attorney General to impose enhanced criminal penalties on anyone who tries to take advantage of victims by acquiring property in the affected areas. Green says the state may consider buying land for affordable housing, that was met with distrust, though, and he quickly explained the goal was to protect the land for people, not take it from them. At the Maui County Council's first meeting after the fire, housing developer Paul Chang also had an announcement. A major project near Lahaina that just broke ground was supposed to be a mix of market rate and affordable units. But because of the tragedy, I am totally willing to give up the market rate units and work with the county and state. Um, to make it all affordable so that, you know, we can do this. Still, rebuilding takes years. 
Many don't know where they can afford to stay and get by financially for that long. Amanda Vieira lived with her boyfriend, whose family lost three homes, none insured. Her sister-in-law's already left. It's her and her two kids, and she's moving to Washington because she's just frustrated and she couldn't find a place. And I mean, I understand, but I don't think I could leave Lahaina, but it would be easier, honestly. Jeremy De Los Reyes has been tempted, too. Life is such a struggle now, he says, and his wife has relatives in Texas, but he just can't. I know in my heart I'm going to die in Lahaina. So I'm going to be here. I'm not going to sell anything. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Maui. Former President Trump's surrender and booking at the Fulton County Jail has put renewed attention on that facility. The jail itself is overcrowded and dilapidated. And as Shemaine Cruz from member station WABE reports, it's also under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. Last month, Kristen Clark with the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department said it's looking at living conditions at the Fulton County Jail. People held in jails and prisons do not surrender their constitutional and civil rights at the jailhouse door. The inquiry started after an independent autopsy found that 35-year-old LaShawn Thompson died in his cell covered in bedbugs. He had been arrested on a misdemeanor charge just three months earlier. Those circumstances were far from isolated. Following Mr. Thompson's death, evidence emerged that the mental health unit where he died was infested with insects and that the majority of people living in that unit were malnourished and not receiving basic care. The jail was built for about 1,100 inmates, but now holds 3,600. According to Clark, 87% of the jail population is black and the vast majority have not been convicted. They are awaiting bail hearings or are unable to post bail. And a third of individuals in the jail likely have mental health issues, says Alton Adams. He's the county's chief operating officer for the jail. Arguably, if you were to pull one lever to be able to say, can we find a place for those individuals to be dealt with, treated in a different way that solves the problem long term because we know jail isn't the right place. Six people have died at the jail this year. In March, Georgia's Chief Justice Michael Boggs blame judicial backlog for some of the overcrowding. And advocacy groups have called for diversion programs instead of incarceration. But Fulton County Sheriff Pat Labatt says the county needs a new jail. It's a human crisis. And I have been begging for the resources for 887 days. I'm really, really tired of begging for money to do my job. This was at a county commission meeting. The county has spent more than $5 million this year to improve conditions and is looking to fund a new jail at a cost of about $1.6 billion. For NPR News, I'm Shemaine Cruz in Atlanta. to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, college football is about to return after going through a dramatic transformation in the offseason. 
Start your weekend with WBUR tomorrow. We'll explain the soaring price of rice around the globe and talk with New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu about his predictions for the Republican presidential nomination. The news, then wait, wait at 10. Listen again tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the week on an upswing. The Dow gained three-quarters of a percent. The S&P picked up almost 0.7 percent. NASDAQ jumped almost 1 percent. It's coming up on 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, committed to offering eco-friendly options that are sustainably made and safe for your home and the environment. Locations at circlefurniture.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Well, listen to WBUR anywhere you go this summer. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Taking a look at the forecast, it looks like more wet weather for tonight. We'll have a low around 68 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. We might see some more showers, maybe a thunderstorm. Temps will be in the upper 70s. Sunday looks like the weekend day for outdoor plans. It should be partly sunny and in the low to mid-70s. Should be even sunnier on Monday with temps in the mid-70s and then mostly cloudy in the low to mid-70s on Tuesday. Right now it's 70 degrees with some light rain in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. There is perhaps no symbol more strongly associated with Arizona than the saguaro cactus. But the record-breaking heat in the southwest has killed some of these desert-adapted plants. And as Catherine Davis-Young from member station KJZZ reports, scientists are looking for ways to ensure that saguaros can survive in a warming climate. This summer's intense heat has pushed the thousands of plants at the renowned Desert Botanical Garden in Phoenix to the brink. Small barrel cactuses are draped in black shade cloths, bright green prickly pears have faded to yellow, and Kevin Holteen, the garden's director of research, points out one of the towering saguaros. It has 10 huge arms reaching toward the sky, but one is on the ground. In fact, let's look at this one over here. You can see there's an arm that actually fell at one point off of this plant. Saguaros can be 40 feet tall and live 150 years. Holtine says they're even hardier than other cactus species because they're so well adapted to extreme conditions. But summers have never been this extreme in Phoenix before. Holtine says the cactuses can't breathe in the carbon dioxide they need when overnight temperatures don't cool off. And when they're dehydrated, their firm outer skin shrivels since saguaros weigh hundreds of pounds. Eventually, you start to lose structural integrity near the base, and then the whole plant will just fall over. 
And that's happening more and more. Before this year, the hottest summer on record in Phoenix was 2020. Holtine says the garden has about a thousand saguaros and typically 10 die every year. But since 2020, it's been more like 40 per year. I expect that the rates of mortality are probably gonna to continue to ramp up for the next several years. In the Tucson area, a couple hours south, temperatures are cooler than in Phoenix. At Saguaro National Park, there's been no significant damage to the namesake cactuses. Still, park biologist Don Swan says it has been hotter and drier than normal this year, and saguaro seedlings struggle in these conditions. When they're very small, they can't store very much water, and so they rely on the soil. Mature saguaros in the park have fared better than their counterparts in Phoenix, but the changing climate is still a threat. We've been in a long-term drought really now since the uh, mid-1990s and so we've seen a lot fewer saguaros entering the population in the last you know 25-30 years. Saguaros are not an endangered species but scientists are beginning to think about how to ensure these cactuses can survive into the future. We want to be able to plant saguaros that will be the most well adapted to basically our new hotter environment. Helen Rowe is with the School of Earth and Sustainability at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. She's working with a team of researchers to find ways to protect the iconic cactuses. Rowe says there are parts of the Sonoran Desert even hotter and drier than Phoenix where saguaros grow. Her team plans to take seeds from those cactuses along with other saguaro populations and eventually plant them in northern Mexico, Tucson, and Phoenix. So that would give kind of a, a range of the growing conditions and we could see which is best adapted for each site. And which genetic lines can survive the harshest summers. But since the plants are so slow growing, it could take many years before researchers know if it's possible to breed a more heat resilient saguaro. And the project isn't fully funded yet. In the meantime, Kevin Holtine says seeing these giants of the Sonoran Desert collapse more frequently is alarming. He says it's hard to guess what's in store for saguaros in a warming climate, but he says... Are they going to be more and more difficult to maintain? Absolutely. The end of this summer, Holtine says, may just be the beginning of this story. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Davis-Young in Phoenix. In the early 1990s, a young pianist named Awadajan Pratt began racking up awards. He signed with a marquee label and recorded albums of Bach, Brahms, and Beethoven. But it's been 12 years since Pratt's last album, and now he's back, this time with brand new commissions from top composers, and NPR's Tom Heisinga has been listening. The long wait for Awadajan Pratt's new album, Still Point, has been worth it. He could have easily popped into a recording studio with a few Warhorse favorites and voila, but no, the new album has been carefully thought out. Pratt handed six composers a few lines about dance from his favorite T.S. Eliot poem, Burt Norton, as a jumping off point. And beginning with its opening notes, Stillpoint takes flight. That's called Rounds by Jesse Montgomery, a mini piano concerto supporting new harmonies within old structures. Pratt and the composers on the album are exploring the tension between motion and stillness found in T.S. Eliot's verses. Composer Tyshawn Sori took that idea and distilled it into something untethered. 
The wispy voices of the ensemble Roomful of Teeth and Pratt's lonely tolling piano call to mind the vast, quiet spaces of Morton Feldman. Composer Paola Prestini took the T.S. Eliot prompt one step further, digging into intimate letters the poet wrote to a schoolteacher. Ultimately, Eliot refuted his feelings, but Prestini's piece Code explores the unknowable space between avowal and denial, and in its final moments bursts open in beauty. Ajahn Pratt is a triple threat. The Pittsburgh native earned degrees in piano, violin, and conducting. His career launched after winning the 1992 Nomburg International Piano Competition. In the center of his new album, Pratt offers a solo piano piece by Petrus Vosks. Here, the inspiration comes not only from Eliot, but a 16th century nun. The music reveals a kind of still point between spiritual and intellectual ecstasy, and Pratt makes the music burn, whether it's agitated or tranquil. Composer Elvin Singleton is an elder statesman. The 82-year-old's contribution called Time Past, Time Future toys with the elasticity of time. The eclectic music reaches for pop, jazz, and a bit of Bach. The album closes with another pint-sized piano concerto, this time by Judd Greenstein, who alternates turbulent outbursts with quieter rippling passages. Six distinct new pieces on this album, each trying to teach us how to balance contradictions in our lives to find the still point. That's an engaging album. Let's hope we don't have to wait 12 years for the next one. The album is called Still Point by Awadajan Pratt. Our reviewer is NPR's Tom Heisinger. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. You can also find us on the WBUR app. Coming up in the next half hour, with the average mortgage rates now higher than 7% in the U.S., some homeowners who have low rates feel tethered to their homes, unable to sell and move. And more than a year after the CNN Plus streaming service barely got off the ground before going bust, CNN's parent company will launch a new streaming platform in September. We can expect some showers, maybe a thunderstorm tonight, lows in the upper 60s. It'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and storms tomorrow. Temps will approach 80 degrees. Sunday, partly sunny with a high of 73. Monday, will have even more sunshine temperatures in the mid-70s. More clouds will roll in for Tuesday. Right now, it's 71 degrees and overcast in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we ask the tough questions, whether we're talking about politics or scientists saying you only need to exercise for three seconds a day. Was this study funded by, like, the laziest man in the world? It was. I'm Nagin Farsad, in for Peter Sagal. Join us as we grill our panel and superstar music producer Mark Ronson on this week's News Quiz. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Former President Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants have met the deadline to surrender to authorities in Georgia. NPR's Windsor Johnston says they're facing a barrage of criminal charges, including racketeering for their alleged efforts to subvert the will of Georgia voters back in the 2022 election. Each of the 19 defendants, including former President Donald Trump, have been processed at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta. Trump was booked last night, becoming the first former U.S. president with a mugshot. As part of the deal reached with prosecutors, Trump agreed not to intimidate the other co-defendants and witnesses in the case, specifically on social media. Prosecutors have accused Trump and his allies of taking part in a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the 2020 election in the state. So far, they all have denied wrongdoing. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has requested that arraignments in the case take place the week of September 5th. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris welcomed the 2022 WNBA champion Las Vegas Aces to the White House today as part of the long-standing tradition of celebrating sports league champions. But Vice President Harris was quick to point out these women were more than just winners on the basketball court. They were also champions of great social and economic causes. The WNBA is more than a basketball league. You inspire our young people and people across our nation to dream with ambition. You are living the truth that women belong in every room and on every court. The championship title is the first for the Aces and for the state of Nevada. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 247 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the city council to pass an ordinance that would give police more authority to prevent illegal activity in the area known as Mass and Cass. That's the epicenter of the area's opioid and homelessness crisis, where there's been a recent uptick in violent activity. Police Commissioner Michael Cox says police need greater leeway to remove tents. The ordinance would give the police the authority to take down the tarps and tents and structures that are, uh, that are occupying public ways and oftentimes are used to shield the criminal uh, disorder that goes on there. The mayor says the city has an effective support system in place to help those in need. She says that's helping police work effectively with public health and housing experts. Knowing the people who are in need of services and knowing who is not in need of services and are there to prey upon those who are, are hoping for housing and shelter and, and recovery. The mayor also wants to put 30 temporary shelter beds at Boston Public Health Commission offices on Mass Ave. 100 Massachusetts farms will receive $10,000 each to help them recover from this summer's floods. It's the first round of help from the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. The fund is run by the United Way. It was created after heavy flooding in July across the western part of the state destroyed an estimated $15 million worth of crops.
The Haverhill Teachers Union says the school committee has decided to drop its lawsuit against the Education Association for last year's teacher strike. The union says the school board is no longer seeking a half million dollars from the union for costs the city incurred during the job action. The teachers union has agreed to withdraw its unfair labor charge it filed with the state. In sports, the Red Sox face the Dodgers in Boston tonight. The game will mark the return of Mookie Betts to Fenway for the first time since he was traded to L.A. in 2020. Cutter Crawford will be on the mound for the Sox. Also tonight, the Patriots will take on the Titans in Tennessee. It's the Pats' final preseason game. The team's first official game of the season is September 10th when they host the Eagles. We'll have scattered showers and thunderstorms tonight, temps in the upper 60s. Tomorrow will be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain and thunderstorms. It'll be in the upper 70s. It's looking brighter for Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The college football season kicks off tomorrow, and if you haven't been paying close attention, you're in for quite the surprise. The offseason was a period of transformation. Legacy conferences like the Pac-12 are on life support after schools like UCLA and USC left. Schools will compete on new stations and streaming platforms thanks to billion-dollar TV contracts. There were even rule changes to how the clock will run. It's all happening one year before the college football playoff expands from four teams to 12. Nicole Auerbach's been covering all of this for The Athletic and NBC Sports. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, the offseason used to be your slow period. What happened? (laughs) Well, it's busier than the season because you've had congressional input, you've had Supreme Court rulings, you've had all sorts of stuff that's affected the business of college sports, which has led to this realignment and name, image, and likeness changes. It's been nonstop. So can you break down how things moved so fast just in these last few months and why? Ultimately, it comes down to money, and it comes down to people's anxiety about their own futures. And the Big Ten and the SEC are going to be bringing in so much more money than even their peer conferences that people have been essentially begging to get invited to the Big Ten or the SEC. All of this was really kicked off when Oklahoma and Texas left the Big 12 for the SEC. The rest of the musical chairs has essentially been in response to that. But the Pac-12 implosion earlier this summer was because they did not have a suitable media rights deal. And their schools revolted, believing that they would not be able to compete at the highest levels against their peers in the richer conferences if they had the deal with Apple that was presented to them. So at that point, the schools that had options to leave left. So you had Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah go to the Big 12, and Washington and Oregon go to the Big 10. Okay, so that's the big picture. I want to talk specifically about the Georgia Bulldogs because they won back-to-back national championships. 
And since then, the team has had at least a dozen incidents of reckless driving and speeding. A team member and staffer were even killed in a crash. How is that likely to affect their chances of repeating their success this season? Well, I don't know that it will affect what we're seeing on the field because Georgia's schedule leaves something to be desired. Uh, I think the expectation for sure is that they will be undefeated heading into the college football playoff. But there have been a lot of questions, and I'll be fascinated to see what disciplinary procedures are in place for reckless driving in particular. This has been a problem not just at Georgia, but it is definitely under a microscope there. And you've got to think that there would be some real punishment to actually deter and change behavior there because this is just awful and you would think that having a player die and a staffer die would be enough but we'll have to see again I don't know that it would necessarily impact what they will do on the field unless players are withheld from competition well on the field if Georgia looks as strong as ever what teams do you think are well suited to possibly challenge them this year Michigan is a team that we've seen make the playoff the last couple of years and should be the best team that Jim Harbaugh's had yet Ohio State always right there Um, You've got Texas, questions about whether or not they can be back. Clemson has a new quarterback and a new offensive coordinator. And then really there's a handful of teams out west in the last year of the Pac-12 as we know it that could really break through and end the drought that that league has had. USC, Oregon, Washington could be among the contenders there. So it's actually more of a wide open field than usual. The season is long, and it hasn't even started, so I'm not going to hold you to this. But who's your money on to make it to Houston for the championship? I think I'm going to go with the Georgia Bulldogs. They're trying to three-peat. This is insanely hard to do. But the way the schedule falls, I'd be shocked if they're not in the college football playoff. They are so deep and so talented because of how Kirby Smart has recruited And I'm going to say that they're going to be facing the Michigan Wolverines. Quarterback J.J. McCarthy should take the next step in his development to go with a great bruising run game and a great defense. So I think we're going to see a rematch of a matchup we saw a couple years ago between these two teams. Georgia got the better of Michigan, but I think that's where we're headed, and I, I think it would be a fantastic season finale. Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic and NBC Sports, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. The average mortgage rate on a home in the U.S. is over 7%. That's the highest level in more than two decades. As a result, a lot of homeowners are staying put in their current homes instead of buying a new place and taking out a mortgage with a much higher rate. Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economic show, The Indicator from Planet Money, explain how that decision impacts the entire housing market. The vast majority of homeowners in the U.S. have a 30-year fixed mortgage. They get one interest rate at the time they borrow the money, and that rate stays the same for 30 years. And that makes the U.S. mortgage market pretty unique. And there are benefits to the 30-year fixed mortgage. Julia Fonseca is a professor at the Gies College of Business at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She says the 30-year fixed mortgage insulates people against interest rate increases. But when rates do go up and a homeowner wants to move... This is going to add to the financial cost of moving because you have to pay off this loan at a very low rate and take out a new one at a much higher rate. And we wanted to ask, what does that do to borrowers? Why does this matter? And I think one reason why we should definitely care about this is it affects other people. Julia researched these effects for a working paper released earlier this year. She co-authored the paper with Lu Liu, a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and they studied data on millions of mortgage borrowers between 2010 and 2018. They were looking at the impact of mortgage rate lock-in on housing markets and labor markets. 
In a healthy housing market, you have first-time homeowners buying starter homes, and you have current homeowners upgrading from starter homes to something nicer, or maybe they're moving in search of job opportunities. But with mortgage rate lock-in, current homeowners don't move because they'd have to give up a low rate for a high one. In fact, Julia and her co-author found that for every one percentage point increase in mortgage rates, moving rates go down by 9%. It's a substantial decline in people moving, and that means fewer homes for sale. And that squeeze on supply could keep home prices high, at least in the short term. If no one is putting up their homes for sale, that doesn't just affect the person who is not upgrading to a better home. This could affect that first-time home buyer that can't find a home to purchase. And that might even be a factor in explaining why house prices in the U.S. have not declined much, while in other countries, there we're really seeing house price declines. Julianne, our co-author, found that mortgage lock-in leads to fewer people moving for better-paying jobs. In other words, a worker might give up a job that pays better or is a better match for their skills because the financial cost of moving outweighs those benefits. And when these individual decisions are added up across the economy, that can disrupt the smooth functioning of labor markets. It could keep workers from finding the best jobs. It could keep firms from finding the best workers. Julia says there are some ways to alleviate mortgage lock-in. The industry could look at offering portable mortgages. That's where a homeowner can transfer the terms of their existing loan to a new property. It's common in some countries outside of the U.S. Darian Woods, Waylon Wong, and PR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Late next month, CNN plans to launch a new digital service. It's called CNN Max and will appear on the streaming platform Max. Now, if this sounds familiar, you might remember that a streaming platform called CNN Plus lasted just a few weeks before it was shut down in April of last year. So what makes this time different? Well, NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick is here to explain. Hey, David. Hey, Ari. Let's start with what it's going to offer. Is the stuff on CNN Max going to look very different from what CNN Plus was supposed to have been? I think it's going to look quite different from what CNN was supposed to evolve into. I mean, right now we're going to see a vertical essentially called CNN Max on the Max service. Max might better have been known to many people as HBO. Uh, Max is what evolved when uh, Discovery essentially swallowed uh, CNN and HBO's parent company, Time Warner. And so they've got a bunch of other things up there, you know, Turner Classic Movies and others. This is going to be one of those verticals. You're going to see some, you know, restreams of well-recognized shows from people like Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper, Wolf Blitzer, and some new ones from folks like uh, Jim Acosta, Frederico Whitfield, and Jim Shuto, you know, people familiar to CNN, but fresh shows, including some breaking news that Shuto will anchor. They'll also live stream some of the shows from CNN International, and you'll still be able to see some of what are called the CNN Originals on there. But it's not as fully fledged uh, an offering. You know, CNN Plus was envisioned by uh, Jeff Zucker and uh, uh, Andrew Morse, two of the top officials there before uh, last uh, spring of 2022, as being really a full offer direct to 
consumer uh, product uh, that would be like the BBC or the New York Times, kind of immersing people in not just the news, but in a lot of cultural and other interests as well. Why did CNN Plus have the plug pulled on it? So Jeff Zucker was the head of CNN, and he was fired in very early, I believe, February of 2022. Uh, and Chris Licht was brought in by the head of uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, uh, David Zasloff. And pretty much before Licht even entered the door, he killed it. And this was a way in which that Warner Brothers Discovery, among other things, could show that to Wall Street that it was serious about getting its debt and costs underlined because this was going to be a very expensive proposition. But that said, uh, it also there were concerns about whether or not this would make the profits. Now, Licht is gone. And there are, you know, other news organizations around the world, including our own, have found ways to do things direct for consumer. A lot of other newsletters or uh, outlets are doing sort of alternative live streams. This is CNN's uh, version of that to some degree. So are there real substantive reasons to believe things are going to go differently this time? Or is it just a difference in leadership and a, a new team with their own vision? Well, it's a different strategy. It's in some ways a more contained strategy. It looks like it's, uh, for the moment, more interested in bolstering uh, the, the subscriptions to Max itself, that streaming service. The idea is you keep it there, uh, you, you offer more things for the consumer for their subscription cost, uh, and you're also sort of saying as people cord cut, look, we're going to have a direct streaming product to some degree. Cable ratings are going down. People are, are essentially dropping off subscribing to conventional cable. But there's also the question of, you know, is the new leadership considering whether or not they're going to spin off CNN? And are there ways in which they can deal with debt? This is a way to handle that. In just a couple sentences, is you think it's going to work this time? They're calling it a beta edition. That is the very first effort. I think it's going to be an opportunity for them to show that there's a landing place for CNN. The guys who did CNN Plus wanted to shove real CNN there within a year or two. These guys are, I think, trying to evolve more slowly. NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. Thanks. You bet. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for kicking off your Friday evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6 o'clock, Republicans see an opportunity to expand their base in Wisconsin, where many disillusioned Latino voters seem willing to give them a chance. This says the 2024 election could come down to just thousands of votes in that state and some others. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers create healthy classrooms with a nine-month online graduate certificate in social-emotional learning, online.merrimack.edu. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. There will be some showers, maybe some thunderstorms tonight with a low around 68 degrees. We'll have a chance of more showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy with a high approaching 80. Sunday, skies will start clearing out. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's time for another Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali. The Guest by Emma Klein is a novel about love and romance. Well more about lying and grifting. 22-year-old Alex is staying at her wealthy older suitor's Long Island beach house for the summer. All's well until Alex embarrasses her lover and he kicks her out of his home. Nevertheless, she wants him back 
and she has a five-day plan to swindle her way into his arms again. For a classic summer romance novel, look elsewhere. For a chaotic page-turner about survival, check out The Guest by Emma Klein. To get weekly book recommendations just like this, send straight to your inbox. Subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Tonally and aesthetically, Ashniko is a lot. Her music is bratty, sex-positive, and haunting, with a touch of chaos and a lot of confidence. Ashniko's new album, Weed Killer, tackles broad, urgent issues like climate change and policy fights over reproductive and LGBTQ rights, then mixes in more personal and reflective moments. And on the day when it all goes out to the world, they're feeling, well, let's let Ashniko say it. I feel like my head has, like, car exhaust and bees and just all sorts of like goo in it. What makes Weed Killer so interesting is that while she sings and at times screams about all of those thorny topics, Weed Killer is also a concept album about a fantasy world that Ashniko spent years thinking up and fleshing out. So this Nim utopia that is this forest populated by Nim and these mother trees and they have this symbiotic relationship where they um, share resources and stories back and forth between Nim and Tree. And that utopia is kind of threatened by these weed killers. And weed killers are these machines that harvest biomatter. So they turn biomatter into fuel to power themselves. And my main character is on this quest to avenge their family in the forest. I know this is about you, but hearing you talk, it's so clear that you know you're you're so deeply inspired by fantasy and sci-fi and in the horror genre as well. I'm I'm wondering, what does that genre mean to you in your life? How you interact with it? I love fantasy like a family member. Right now I'm rereading Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. I have a book club on my Discord uh, and that's really fun. I love Patrick Rothfuss. Um, the main pop star of my life is Neil Gaiman mm -hmm. and his novels. He's like the only person that I think if I saw him on the street, I would start crying. <laughs> like really just lose my mind. The way he builds out his worlds are just, it's just phenomenal. Can we get at some of the songs here, specifically? Please, yeah, I would love to. Uh, I want to start with You Make Me Sick. And, yes. and it hits a lot, you know, some of the overarching themes of this album is a song full of rage toward toxic, abusive men. We can hear you even screaming as you emphasize that rage. What does this song represent to you? This song is actually the first song that I put out after like a year and a half. And it is, not within the, the fantasy concept of the album. It was kind of like the bridge between my old music to my new music. So sonically, we took some like apocalyptic, very like industrial sounds. And for me, it was this purging, this catharsis, kind of like this extraction of toxic sludge 
that was living in my body, these, these parasites and these thorns in my sides. Like, I haven't, I haven't been super <laughs> blatant about what I'm talking about. So I wanted to write a more in your face song kind of purging myself of a certain man yeah. in my life. <laughs> Possession of a Weapon is another song I wanted to ask about, and I understand you wrote it right after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I did. There's this line in the song where I say, don't rain on my paper mache. And it, it kind of felt like all of this progress that we had been making, it, it felt like we had been building this quote, progress out of paper mache. And then this like natural disaster came in and just destroyed it and kind of was laughing at us like, oh, like you thought you had control over your life? Well, you actually don't. It's definitely grieving that collective loss of autonomy. Yeah. And I, I feel so heartbroken for the people that this is going to affect the most. Say you want my body, let me give it to you. Is that who you want? Blood and guts. One other song I wanted to talk about is Miss Nectarine, which, mm. which gets at your upbringing in, in rural conservative North Carolina and, and discovering your queerness um, while also being made to hide it. You know, you're you're known for being wildly expressive and proud about your queer identity. How did you get to that point after what sounds like in your lyrics um, a repressive childhood when it comes to when it comes to accepting that and 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 making that an outward part of your personality? I think the reason why I am so expressive is because of my upbringing. Yeah. It was like as soon as I turned 18 and was able to go craft my own life for myself, it was like an explosion. It was like, wow! Being able to go out and create this community for myself and see queer people having happy endings and content lives full of love. For me, it was like completely new and foreign to me. Like I had no queer representation growing up. Yeah. And that would have been so helpful to me as a young queer person in the Bible Belt. Like even if my parents had seen that, I think it would have been easier for them to to understand and to see a future for me. And I, I think that, yeah, representation is important. There's a lot of love on this album, too, and one of the songs that really gets to that is Dying Star. How does it feel, especially especially with what you're talking about from earlier in life, how does it feel to be in this position where you can write songs and sing them that are so clearly and tenderly about queer love and, and hope? I definitely couldn't be as expressive as I am now when I was growing up, when I was in high school. And now I, I think that, that young me would be super impressed and elated that I get to have that freedom now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dying Star is super, super special to me because it's it's the closest thing I've ever gotten to a love song. And it's about coming home to someone soft, coming home to this home planet and just like 
sinking into the grass and just allowing yourself to just be. That's Ash Nico. Her new album is Weed Killer. It's out now. Thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you so much. To catch me softly in her baseball mitt. I'm tired of the dirt and grit. I want something soft. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR, coming to City Space Saturday, September 9th. Three-time U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky for a special evening of poetry featuring jazz performances. Tickets at wbur.org events. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. City leaders in Boston have a new plan to address the public health and safety crisis at the Mass and Cass tent encampment. They want police to be able to quickly remove tents. We're seeking authority to shut down the spaces that are creating unsanitary and dangerous conditions and supporting the drug market that goes on there as well as the other criminal activities. It's Friday, August 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential photographer analyzes the mugshot of former President Trump. And Republicans see an opportunity to expand their base in Wisconsin, where many disillusioned Latino voters seem willing to give them a chance. If Republicans have some good points, I am open to voting for them. But it really, really has to persuade me to really choose them. Those voters could pull a lot of weight in the 2024 election. It's 6.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. On Maui, authorities now say they are only looking for several hundred people who still haven't been accounted for after a deadly wildfire earlier this month. 
NPR's Kirk Sigler reports the number missing had been upwards of 1,000. Hawaii's governor and other authorities have been indicating that the death toll itself may not climb much higher than its current 115, despite the hundreds of people who aren't accounted for yet. That could just mean that they haven't had time to check in with the Red Cross or FEMA because they're in personal crisis. David Ormsby's apartment building burned down, so did the water company where he works. It feels like it was yesterday. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's still so raw, you know, it's just, I, I feel like if I was getting up and going to work, you know, I wouldn't be thinking about it as much. For now, he and his girlfriend are staying at a Hyatt north of Lahaina that's taking in fire survivors. He's hoping they can stay here at least for the next month. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Maui. Former President Donald Trump and 18 others have been charged with felony state crimes in Georgia. They've all turned themselves in. The group facing charges contained in a multi-count indictment alleging they conspired to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump turned himself in last night, becoming the first president in U.S. history to have a mugshot taken. Others who had still not surrendered to Georgia authorities did so this morning. All but one agreed to a bond amount and conditions set by D.A. Fawney Willis ahead of time. Trump was freed on $200,000 bond. The Kremlin is dismissing allegations Russian President Vladimir Putin was behind the apparent death of Wagner mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin in a plane crash outside Moscow this week. NPR's Charles Maines reports Russia was reacting to claims by the U.S. and other Western countries that Putin may have ordered Prigozhin's death. Speaking to reporters, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Western claims of Putin's involvement in the crash were, quote, absolute lies. Peskov noted there was lots of speculation around the crash and tragic deaths of people, including Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, and implied the West was out to fan disinformation. Peskov also repeated calls from the Russian president for a full investigation into the incident. On Thursday, Putin expressed sympathies for the families of those killed and said initial reports suggested many were members of the Wagner mercenary group. The Russian president also appeared to eulogize Prigozhin, referring to him in the past tense without unequivocally stating the Wagner chief had died in the crash. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell seemed to indicate during a closely watched speech today the war on inflation is not yet over. Speaking in an annual conference of central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the chairman said the Fed will continue to monitor the economy. He did note the delicate balance between raising interest rates too much and possibly pushing the economy into recession. Wall Street managed to pull out its first winning week in four weeks. The Dow up 247 points. The Nasdaq rose 126 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The state's police oversight agency says it's working to correct errors in the new officer discipline database. The Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission, or POST, this week released the public database on thousands of police punished for misconduct. Officer misconduct information from Brookline, Cambridge, and Everett Police Departments was not included. Some health insurance companies in Massachusetts plan to continue coverage of Narcan when it becomes available over-the-counter in the next few weeks. Narcan is a well-known brand of naloxone, the drug that reverses an opioid overdose. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has the latest. Narcan is moving from a prescription to non-prescription drug to make it more available. But health insurance doesn't typically cover non-prescription meds. In this case, some insurers say they will because Narcan could be unaffordable for many people, like those Kim Powers serves on Cape Cod. Powers runs the mobile harm reduction program Access Hope. What's a life worth? A kid's 50 bucks. Nobody can tell me that a person who uses drugs, life's not worth 50 bucks. 
Insurers that do not plan to cover over-the-counter Narcan say they will cover other versions of naloxone to ensure members have access to this life-saving medication. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. UMass Memorial Health is reinstating some masking requirements following a dramatic increase in COVID cases among employees. Staff will have to wear masks in clinical areas when working with patients. UMass Memorial is strongly encouraging outpatients and visitors to wear masks. The Boston Symphony Orchestra's first European tour since 2018 is underway. That's the orchestra warming up earlier today before its concert at Royal Albert Hall in London. The BSO will perform in nine cities, including Paris, Berlin, and Hamburg, over the next couple of weeks. And in sports, the Red Sox face the Dodgers in Boston tonight. The game marks the return of Mookie Betts to Fenway Park for the first time since he was traded to L.A. in 2020. Cutter Crawford will be on the mound for the Sox. Also tonight, the Patriots will take on the Titans in Tennessee. It's the Pats' final preseason game. The team's first official game of the season is September 10th when they host the Eagles. Looks like more wet weather for tonight. We'll have a low around 68 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. We might see some more showers, maybe a thunderstorm. Temps will be in the upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. In a few minutes, we'll hear from voters in a key battleground state about why they say they're more open to Republican candidates now than three years ago. First, this week's big moment for the Republican frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. If you go on Etsy today, you can find T-shirts, coffee mugs, even mouse pads featuring an image of him that did not exist until last night. His mugshot. Beyond being historic, the photograph is a powerful symbol that can be used in different ways. The image was the first thing Trump posted when he returned to the social media platform X last night. David Hume Kennerly is a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who has photographed 10 U.S. presidents, including Trump. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Glad to be here. Before I asked about the, the context or impact of this mugshot, will you just offer an assessment of it as an image? When you first look at it, what do you see? Well, it's it's stark. It's um, a guy trying to look tough. If I'd taken that picture for Time magazine, I would have been fired, probably. <laughs> Why do you say that? <laughs> well, I mean, the lighting and everything about it. A police mugshot is uh, not trying to flatter the subject, and this definitely was the case here. You photographed the former president in an extremely different context, and so will you contextualize this image in light of that personal experience that you had? I, I was shooting for CNN, the 2016 campaign, and three weeks after he won, we got a session with him in Trump Tower. And during the whole time he was president, he did very few sit-down portraits. And uh, uh, I don't think he really likes doing that, but I, I made it work. It, it, it was like three minutes and at one point he said, I want to look in the back of the camera if you don't mind, see what you're doing. Hmm. And he looked at it. He goes, 
wow, that, I look better there than I do in real life. Hmm. And the thing is, working with him on the photo session, uh, it started off with him smiling, and it just it didn't look natural. And I said, how about giving me the you're fired look from The Apprentice? And he gave me that kind of a scowl, very similar to this, uh, this picture that we've seen uh, from Fulton County. This is the first ever mugshot of a former president. And that alone makes it a powerful historical artifact. But do you think there is also something about the image itself that adds to its impact? Oh, yeah. The circumstances are everything here. And he he obviously is trying to show a tough guy. Yeah, I I think he was uh, in a really uncomfortable place there, but he knew what he wanted to do. And he has a real sense of how he looks, how he comes across. And what's interesting to me about it, like anybody who doesn't like him will look at it and say, wow, it makes him look like a really bad guy. And then all the people who really like him uh, are going to say, this is a tough uh, person. And and uh, it's, it's photos are like that. It's all in how you perceive them. There is a whole history of famous mugshots. It's a genre unto itself. We've all seen (laughs) historic booking photos of celebrities or politicians accused of crimes. How do you think this stacks up in that category? Number, it's number one. Hmm. The the guy's a former president of the United States. I mean, how shocking is that? And it's not shocking that they're putting it on coffee mugs and t-shirts and all that, because that's just how they roll. But this is not a great day in American history, uh, although it's a really important photo. All right. I hesitate to ask this question, but I'm going (laughs) to do it anyway. Is it art? Not at all. No. But again, uh, isn't art in the eye of the beholder? And so, uh, uh, but no, I wouldn't look at it as art, but it's, it's infamous. It's an infamous photo. And it will be the most published photograph ever taken, no doubt. Photographer of Presidents, David Hume Kennerly, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Just a couple miles from where Republican presidential candidates held their first debate in Milwaukee, another political battle has begun to brew that could have an even bigger impact on the 2024 race. In the Lincoln Village neighborhood, the Southside community, where it's about as common to be greeted in Spanish as in English, Republicans are trying to cut into Democrats' hold on Latino voters. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has more. While her 11-year-old son is getting his back-to-school haircut, Jennifer Nuno acknowledges she voted for President Biden, thinking he'd bring back more decency to the White House. I did just because of the awful things Trump had said. It hasn't turned out the way she hoped. The 30-year-old mother is thankful for his help with student loans, but she's not sure what practical differences he's made for the larger Latino community in Milwaukee. I just don't see anything changing. I, I mean, I mean, we are where we are right now. <laughs> Nuno, whose family is from Peru, says relatives have been deported under Biden and complains how difficult it is to gain asylum. And like many Americans, she also worries about a rising cost of living. So she's not sure if she'll vote for Biden again. If Republicans have some good points, I am open to voting for them. But it really, really has to persuade me to really choose them. 
Wisconsin is a swing state, but not known for the power of the Latino vote. But there are rapidly growing voting population in a state with such minuscule margins that even a small shift can have a big impact on national politics. Because most Latinos are not committed democratic ideologues. Ben Marquez is a political science professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who specializes in Latino studies. He says a large majority of Latinos will support Democrats, but that's not the point. There are more than 180,000 eligible Latino voters in the state. Biden won the state by less than 25,000 votes. In 2016, Trump did the same. Marcus says that's an opportunity for Republicans. They don't, they don't need to win you know, the Latino vote. They just need to take a big chunk out of the, uh, the traditional Democratic vote. That's what Republicans are trying to do. Recent trends show that more and more Hispanics and Latinos are becoming conservative. Hilaria DeLorean is chairman of the Milwaukee County Republican Party. He's been walking the streets of Lincoln Village and other minority neighbors with a message that conservatives have more to offer on issues like jobs and high food prices, issues that are important to the community. You know, we're not going to win Milwaukee outright. It's impossible. It's just a Democrat city, but we can increase that voter percentage to, you know, help the rest of the state uh, give them breathing room. Republicans feel they don't need to win a majority of Latinos or even a lot more. They just want to win enough to close the narrow gap. Democrats and Latino activists, though, are still confident that they can win on policy. I would be concerned about Republican outreach if it were happening in a vacuum. But um, unless they change their political stance on immigration and on workers' rights, um, they will not make inroads here. That's Christine Newman-Ortiz, the executive director of Voces de la Frontera Action. They've helped lead aggressive outreach efforts, registering new voters and increasing participation. She points to the Latino turnout to help re-elect Democratic Governor Tony Evers as a testament to their efforts, as well as their work helping elect a new progressive judge to the state Supreme Court just this year. Democrats know they'll win the Latino vote, especially with more young Latinos coming of age. The question is, though, will they retain enough to keep the state blue? One illustration of this is that in 2020, 18,000 Latinos in Wisconsin turned 18 and are U.S. citizens. That's the margin of victory. But still, she says, Latinos in the community need to see more from Biden. I know from the work that we did, it was not enough to say how cruel Trump was. They wanted to know what does Biden have to offer. Mario Juarez isn't sure if he likes what Biden has to offer anymore. The problem is that I don't see any change. Juarez is building a new patio and fire pit in his backyard. He runs a landscape architecture business and goes to college at Milwaukee Area Tech. He says he would have voted for Biden three years ago, but wasn't a citizen yet. And since becoming one, he's spent the last couple of years exploring his options. I, I thought because of the color of my skin or, or who I identify as, um, I had to vote a specific way. He's 24, Latino, and gay. He's also a small business owner, and he's more concerned about jobs and the economy. And he also worries about what he calls Biden's woke agenda and efforts to elevate a gender ideology. I used to be very li liberal, but I think as of recently, I've kind of opened my mind a lot more, and I've really looked into my core values and who I am as a person. And he says he's feeling right now that his core values align more with the Republican Party. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Milwaukee.
Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu wants to change the direction his party's headed in, not by running for president. He's determined to make sure former President Donald Trump doesn't end up as his party's next nominee. Republicans are trying to save America. Donald Trump's trying to save himself. Here's Scott Simon's conversation with Governor Sununu on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. And thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR this evening. Up next, the city of Boston's new plans to address the public health and safety crisis around the area known as Mass and Cass. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. On Wall Street, stocks closed the week on an upswing. The Dow gained three-quarters of a percent. The S&P picked up almost 0.7 percent, and NASDAQ jumped almost 1 percent. In local business news, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court today ruled against the online trading company Robinhood in its court fight with Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin. Galvin accused the company of violating state law by using overly aggressive tactics to attract inexperienced investors and encouraging the continued use of its app. The court ruled the state has the authority to uphold its fiduciary rule, which says investment brokers are required to work in their customers' best financial interest. So the state's case against Robinhood can move forward. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. In sports, the Red Sox face the Dodgers in Boston tonight, and it will be a game of mixed emotions for Sox fans as Mookie Betts returns to Fenway for the first time since he was traded to Los Angeles in 2020. Cutter Crawford will be on the mound for the Sox. Also tonight, the New England Patriots play their third and final preseason game. The team is in Tennessee to take on the Titans. ESPN's Mike Reese says Patriots head coach Bill Belichick is going to be conservative tonight. The Patriots aren't expected to play quarterback Mac Jones and any of their regular starters in the preseason finale 
at the Tennessee Titans. That means Bill Belichick is already looking ahead to the regular season opener, September 10th at home, against the defending NFC champion Philadelphia Eagles. The Pats' last preseason game in Green Bay against the Packers was cut short when rookie Isaiah Bolden was hurt in the fourth quarter. We'll have scattered showers and thunderstorms tonight, temps in the upper 60s. Tomorrow will be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain and thunderstorms. It'll be in the upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is outlining what she says is a new phase in dealing with the long-standing problems stemming from addiction and homelessness in the area of the city known as Mass and Cass. The mayor's new strategy includes an ordinance she'll file next week. It would allow police to remove tents from the area near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. It will need approval from the city council to go forward. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following this story and joins us. Hi, Deb. Hello. So what are the specifics of the mayor's ordinance? Well, the mayor says the ordinance would allow police to remove the tents of people who've been offered housing and storage for their belongings and transportation to a place to stay off the streets. Police and social workers would go to the tents. They would help find services for those inside. And once that happened, they would then remove the structures. Wu says basically she has to act because increasing violence near an encampment on Atkinson Street has resulted in public health outreach teams no longer going to that area. When we are taking such serious steps to curb the public safety concerns, that means that there will be some serious disruption as well in the dynamic for people who have been used to gathering and congregating at Mass and Cass. And for those who are conducting criminal activity, that disruption is um, certainly warranted and we will not be tolerating illegal activity. Uh, Deb, didn't the city face criticism and legal action before when trying to have police take away the tents? Yes and yes, Uh, but Wu says this time it would be different. I want to be clear and um, acknowledge that the city of Boston's so-called law enforcement sweeps in the past have not been successful. That is not what we are trying to replicate. Wu says now there's more infrastructure in place to direct people to housing and services to get them help. She also says there are ways to ensure that people's belongings are protected as required by law. The American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts says it's going to wait to comment in detail until it sees the ordinance next week, but it did issue a statement saying that unhoused people have due process rights and, quote, Cities and towns cannot target people for criminal law enforcement operations just because they are sleeping and taking shelter outside. And the mayor's new strategy also includes a plan to put up 30 temporary shelter beds at the Boston Public Health Commission's offices on Mass Ave. Is that already being criticized, I understand? Already, already. Uh, Today, Wu emphasized those beds would be temporary, but the neighborhood group, the South End Forum, has already written to city councilors urging them not to approve this new strategy of the mayor's. Uh, Steve Fox, who is with the South End Forum, says a temporary shelter on Mass Ave is just moving problems to another nearby area of the city. You're moving them out of Mass and Cass, but 
you haven't accommodated where they're going to go. And, you know, they're not going to disappear. And that's the most important thing that I don't think has yet been addressed. Of course, Fox is concerned about people then congregating or perhaps moving tents to the South End. The mayor's plan, we should say, Lynn, also involves closing the engagement center on Atkinson Street, which draws about 200 to 300 people a day. That center offers meals, showers, medical and harm reduction services, and information about treatment and housing and programs and the services there would go to the Mass Ave location where the temporary shelter is. And just to clarify, that would be a temporary closing of that engagement center? That's right. And local law enforcement leaders were on hand for Mayor Wu's announcement today. A little over a year and a half ago, the mayor said she would approach Mass and Cass as a public health crisis, not a public safety problem. So is this a change for her? Well, the mayor today was accompanied by Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox, Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden, and Commissioner Cox said police have seen double-digit increases in gun arrests and assaults in the Mass and Cass area, and he says the tents are helping to shield criminal activity. DA Hayden said he received a million more dollars for his so-called services over sentences program, which provides treatment and services to those charged with low-level nonviolent crimes in exchange for perhaps dropping those charges. So Wu says these are examples of the infrastructure needed to help, and this isn't a change from a public health strategy. She says it's a new effort to deal with public safety concerns. Mm. It's a tough situation all around. WBUR's Deborah Becker, thank you. You're welcome. The president of Spain's soccer federation is refusing to resign despite widespread criticism after his behavior following Spain's victory over England at the Women's World Cup final last weekend. Here to catch us up on the latest is NPR's Laurel Wamsley. Hi, Laurel. Hi, Elsa. Okay, let's just start at the very beginning. What is all of this about? So last weekend, Spain beat England in the final of the Women's World Cup in Sydney. And afterwards, during the ceremony where Spain's players were getting their medals, all of the players were shaking the hands of Luis Rubiales. He's the head of Spain's soccer federation. And Rubiales is kissing their cheeks and pulling them into these tight hugs, sometimes lifting them off the ground. And then when star player Jenny Hermoso walks up, you see Rubiales hug her tightly and then grab her head and kiss her full on the mouth. There's also video of Rubiales making a crotch-grabbing gesture in the dignitaries box. And then after the game, there's a live stream from the locker room, and Hermoso is asked about the kiss. And she says, I didn't like it, but what could I do? Wow. All right, then. What's been the response to all of this so far? I would call it immediate condemnation from nearly all sides. Before the team was even home from Australia, Rubiales and the Soccer Federation were scrambling to do crisis management. Spain's politicians in particular have been very critical. The acting prime minister said Rubiales' apologies were not sufficient, and a deputy prime minister called for his resignation. Okay, and then I understand that there was some kind of emergency meeting today where Rubiales tried to defend his actions. What did he say exactly? That's right. So the Football Federation in Spain had this emergency meeting, and Rubiales is the Federation's president. He got up and he gave this speech where he claimed that Hermoso had given her consent for the kiss and that this was a witch hunt by, quote, false feminists. Um, And then he flatly refused to resign. He said he will not resign. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. He said that five times, and as you can hear, there was applause from those in the room. That's the other members of the Federation, which is largely men. And among those who applauded were the coaches of Spain's men's and women's teams. Okay, so what happens next at this point? Can he be forced out? 
Well, Spain's players are furious about what happened at this meeting and his refusal to resign. So the players union, FootPro, put out a statement just this afternoon in which Jenny Hermoso said that she never consented to the kiss. And in a letter signed by the entire Spanish World Cup squad and at least two dozen more soccer players, they asked for both sporting and structural changes to happen. And they refused to play again for the national team at all unless the current leaders are removed. The government of Spain had already announced it had started proceedings to suspend Rubiales. Uh, so his case is going to the country's sport court, which if it finds that he violated laws or regulations about sexist acts, it could declare him unfit to hold office. And then meanwhile, FIFA, the world governing body of soccer, announced yesterday that it's opening its own disciplinary proceedings against Rubiales. So uh, just to put this in context, many of the top players who would have been on the World Cup squad this year had already refused to play for Spain's coach, Jorge Vilda. So this is a program that's been in turmoil for a while and somehow managed to win a World Cup anyhow. But with all of this happening, it certainly looks like Rubiales' days are numbered. That is NPR's Laurel Wamsley. Thank you, Laurel. You're welcome, Elsa. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov.